Well, I couldn't have planned any of this today. The commissioning, the prayers, the love, the embrace that this has all led up to. I couldn't have planned it. I couldn't have expected it. I couldn't have asked for it. What it is, is a symbol and a demonstration of kingdom-mindedness and God's grace and love. The love that is so deep in this church. From the leadership, the elders, the pastors, and the people. That I am here today, along with people from this new congregation, Resurrection Anglican, which I am blessed to lead for a commissioning service. Where I get to preach God's word. And you get to hear some more about what we're doing and what's happening in this city. It's a testament that there is only one church in Santa Fe, and that's Christ's church, Christ's body. And so thank you, Greg. Thank you, John. Thank you, elders, for having me here, having us from Resurrection Anglican here. Um, it's just, I, I couldn't have planned it. I just finished a vacation. Uh, today's the first day back, so I got to prepare a sermon during vacation, which I wasn't excited about at first, but it ended up being really, really fun. <laughs> but during the, uh, during the vacation before, I was really tired. We're 11 months into planting, 11 months since we landed here, and all of everything was pushed forward because of the coronavirus. We didn't plan on even meeting corporately until next month, but we started meeting in March online in ways that I never expected to start. And so I was really, really tired. It was a much, much needed vacation. But during vacation, I've found, because this is my first time being a pastor on vacation, that I have a little bit more downtime. And so my mind began to wander, and I thought about all the weight of planting a church. John talked about that at the commissioning service in between. There are a lot of tasks. There's a lot of things to think about. But there's also this low-grade weight that hangs on you as church planter, as Greg and John know about. And I was feeling that heavy into vacation. And in fact, most of the first week of my vacation was spent sleeping. My mind during some of that time thought about how good it would be to be back in Denver, to be back at the church that sent us, and how easy it would be. But I was reminded of a word at my confirmation given to me by our bishop. as He was praying for us, speaking in tongues, which I was really surprised at. I was a New Anglican at the time and speaking in tongues. But the word from the bishop to me was that the image was an arrow. And I didn't know what it meant at the time, but I had a bunch of different ideas. And the pastor who was with me at that confirmation asked me what I thought it was, and I said what I thought it was, but he had a much more profound understanding. And he said, Kempton, I think the arrow image for you is that you're planting a church you're being shot out from here to Santa Fe, and you can't come back. <laughs> and at the time, it didn't mean that much. I thought, of course I can't come back. But in the throes of planting, you do feel that way sometimes, that I wish I could go back. This is so much to think about, to pray about, to carry. Um, but today, today as I am reminded of the joy of planting, the joy of why we're in Santa Fe, the joy of the gospel, the joy of God's kingdom and his people. And that comes from this church. It began here at Christ Church, Santa Fe, February 2018, when we came for a missions weekend. My wife and I and our about three-month-old child 
We're way too young to be, he was way too young to be traveling, but we came down anyway to meet Josh Charette from Montana. We came down here for a missions weekend, thinking we'd be in the background doing nothing, just watching and observing and getting to know people. But over and over again that weekend, people would, kept saying to us, you're coming to Santa Fe to plant a church? And my wife and I kept telling them, no, we never even thought of coming to Santa Fe. Santa Fe is a weird city if you grew up in New Mexico like me. But it kept coming up. And so Carissa and I started praying about it. And it became more and more apparent that this is where God's calling us to go. And so today I'm reminded of even though things are weighty and planting churches is exciting, but it's also incredibly serious. And there is a target on our backs. So pray for us, please. But I'm reminded in the midst of that, the joy of the gospel, that God is faithful. And all of that I've said and haven't even introduced myself I'm Kempton. I'm, as Greg said, from Gallup, and I grew up on the Navajo Reservation in Gallup. The last few years, Carissa and I, we've lived in Denver, where I went to seminary, and she went to physical therapy school. And in the midst of seminary, uh, I got, became ordained as an Anglican, uh, Angl not a bishop, as an Anglican deacon, and now I'm an Anglican priest in the Anglican Church of North America. And we've been sent here by a church in Denver who's planted three other churches, and we're their fourth. We're the first ones outside of Denver, and it's a joy to be here, and it's scary, but it's also exciting. And the name of our church is Resurrection Anglican. We call it Res for short, because I'm from the Res, and we do want to reach people from the reservation, because there are over 100 churches in Santa Fe, and I'm not aware of another single Native American, even on staff at another church. And so we're here, and we want to reach Santa Fe, definitely, but also the native peoples of this land. Raising up indigenous leadership, which is not only native, but it's people who get Santa Fe and get the oddities of New Mexico. So raising up indigenous leadership and in some day planting new churches. And that's the hope, that's the prayer, that's the vision and mission of Resurrection Anglican. And so much of it has been nurtured and incubated here at Christ Church. So thank you, Christ Church. And now we're going to get into God's word, Nehemiah 12, which goes along perfectly with what we're celebrating today. So before we get into God's word, and as you turn to Nehemiah 12, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your resurrection, for your spirit that is alive and working in us today. Thank you that you bring together people who the world says ought to be enemies that I am up here as a Navajo man, preaching as an Anglican priest in a Presbyterian church with brothers and sisters of different tribes, tongues, nations, and ethnicities in a city that is being rocked and in a country that's being rocked by unrest and disintegration. May we always remember that what you have brought together, and that is your people, that you were recreating a people for yourself, and no man could put asunder what you have brought together. And that is your church, and there was one church in Santa Fe, and it's your body. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us together. Would you speak to us now as we open your word, like to Nehemiah 12. In your name we pray, amen. So as a little bit of context, the last few weeks, I've listened to the last few weeks of uh, sermons here at, at uh, 
Christ Church. But as we look at Nehemiah, verses chapters 1 through 7 were about rebuilding the wall. Chapters 8 through 10 were about the promise being restored, about covenant renewal, and in many ways, spiritual renewal and revival. And many commentators say that this is the climax of Ezra and Nehemiah, chapters 8 through 10, this revival that's happening there. And then we come to chapters 10, sorry, 11 and 12. And John preached on chapter 11 a few weeks ago. And he talked there about the repopulating of the city and the tithing of people and blessing those people who go to repopulate Jerusalem. And we'll come back to that again in a little bit. And last week, Greg preached on Nehemiah 12, the first half, verses 1 through 26. And in there, he, Greg asked a question in that sermon. Last week, he asked, where do we put our trust? And another way you might phrase that is, what do we worship? Because inevitably, inevitably, what we worship is what we put our trust in. And Greg went through a few ways, of a few things of what worship is. And Greg said this about the worry sometimes that we're in, is that the way to thrive is to worship the king. Now, Greg talked about what worship is last week as he ran through all those names. And this week, at the second half of chapter 12 of Nehemiah, I'm going to talk about and answer this question, how do we worship? How do we worship in the times that we find ourselves in? Times of unrest, of uncertainty, of losing many things and having to take many new things on. How do we worship? I think this is the key question for the second part of Nehemiah 12, this celebration, the dedication of the wall, of what this hundred years of history and work has led up to, the dedication of the wall, and it ends up being this great corporate worship ceremony. And it gives us and tells us how we worship in these times. And I think there are at least three ways that our text shows us we worship in this time. And the first one is purity. We worship in purity. The second one is with joy. And lastly, as Presbyterians and Anglicans, with order. So purity, joy, and order is how we worship in these times. And so first, if you have your Bibles, turn to chapter 12, verse 30. Chapter, verses 27 through 30 talk about Nehemiah bringing the Levites and the musicians together, and they're all coming together to celebrate joyfully. And so everyone's together, the priests, the Levites, and the musicians, and the first thing they do is found in verse 30, and it says this, when the priests and Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, they purified the people, the gates, and the wall. And what this shows us is that purity required, purity is required to approach God in holy worship. Is that when we worship, we do, we must be purified, living a life of purity, praying and doing ceremony for purity. They're doing this ceremony of purifying the walls and the people. In our Anglican liturgy, uh, first part of the service, so the first thing in the service we do is we address God because that's why we're here. And that's what the call to worship here is. We address God first because we're not here for ourselves. We're here first to glorify God. And so it's him who we address first. And so we say, blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And blessed be his kingdom now and forever. And then after that, we have the prayer of purity right at the beginning of the service. 
And we all pray together. Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open and all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. Amen. And so worship begins with purity, our prayer for purity. And, it's, and here, this ceremony for purification is not only for people. It's for the walls and the gates. And so it shows us this act of ceremony, shows us and gives us insight about sacredness. That your life is sacred, my life is sacred, and things are sacred. These walls that they've been building, the temple, it's a sacred place. And we, when we remember the sacredness of things, it does connect to how we ascribe meaning and find meaning in our lives. And meaning is essential for living. Herbert Dreyfus and Sean Kelly are two philosophers, and they wrote a book a few years ago called, titled All Things Shining. Herbert Dreyfus has been teaching philosophy at the University of California, Berkeley, for longer than I've been alive. And Sean Kelly is the chair of the philosophy department at Harvard. As far as I know, I don't think they're Christians. But this book they wrote, All Things Shiny, explores and looks at this question of the connectedness of sacredness and meaning. And they wrote the book because they were worried about our current time, that there is a lack of sacredness, and therefore there's been a loss of meaning in our age. And so they write this at the beginning of the book. The world used to, used to be, in its various forms, a world of sacred, shining things. But then they ask the question, what happened? Why aren't there any more sacred or shining things? They say because of Descartes and the Enlightenment. And other people like Greg and John could talk a lot more and better than me about philosophy. But what they're saying here is that because of the Enlightenment, the world lost its order and its sacredness. Two things that are essential for finding meaning in this world. And so living in this post-Enlightenment age, which we are living in now, we've been tasked with, you and I, with making and finding meaning and ascribing meaning on our own. And because that's an arbitrary task, they say that it's led to and it's induced a creeping nihilism. That there's loss of meaning because of the arbitrariness of we trying to ascribe meaning on our own. And so they write this. The Enlightenment's metaphysical embrace of the autonomous individual leads not just to a boring life, it leads almost inevitably to a nearly unlivable one. A nearly unlivable life because of loss of meaning, loss of the sacred. And so sometimes when we read the Bible, we read about these ceremonies in the Old Testament. We go through even ceremony here. We might forget the sacredness of things. But what Nehemiah is reminding us of, and what the whole of Scripture reminds us of, is that life is sacred, that there are sacred things. And that gives us meaning in this world. And it's essential. And by the end of the book, the authors argue that meaning is needed from outside the autonomous self. And that leads into the next point. How do we worship in purity? We worship in purity, but we worship in joy. We worship with joy. Joy must be found from without, not from within, they said. 
And that joy is found in Nehemiah and the celebration that happens here in chapter 12 from God. And so as we look at our text, verses 31 through 40, sorry, 31 through 39, talk about Nehemiah gathering the two choirs, sending and sending them up on top of the wall and sending one wing of them to the south and one wing of them to the north. And I can't help but think that Nehemiah at this time has some great sense of satisfaction, especially as he thinks about Tobiah. Tobiah who jeered at him in Nehemiah 4.3, saying that even if a fox crawled up on your wall, the wall would crumble. But today, on this day of dedicating the wall, two choirs go up on the wall, and they're ready to rejoice and sing. And that's what we find in the dedication of the wall. Is this not a weak wall? It's a wall of strength. It's a wall that's sacred. It's a wall for the holy city of God. And two choirs go up on it. And we come to verse 40, and it says this. The two choirs that gave thanks then took their places in the house of God. So they've left the wall, and so did I, together with half the officials as well as the priests. And jumping down to the end of verse 42. The choir sang under the direction of Jezrahiah. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. The women and children are rejoicing, as well as the men, showing that they are a part of this covenant community as well. And the rejoicing is heard far away. And the rejoicing doesn't come from themselves. Just like Dreyfus and Kelly said, it comes from somewhere else. And we see that the reason for their rejoicing comes in verse 43, the second part of verse 43. They're rejoicing because God had given them great joy. Joy and meaning that comes from the outside, that comes from God, omnipotent God. As St. Anselm said, that then which nothing greater can be conceived. That's where their joy comes from. And that's where our joy comes from today. And it's heard far away. We meet right now in my backyard for Resurrection Anglican. And my backyard is dusty. And it backs right up to Zia. And it's loud with cars driving by. And it sometimes drives me crazy. But... Every Sunday that we gather, I try to remind myself and the people of Resurrection Anglican that there are people, there are my neighbors, there are people walking by that need to hear the gospel. And I pray that a neighbor who's sitting out on their porch, that a passerby, either on Zia or on my block, hears the gospel being proclaimed, that they hear us rejoicing, that they hear that we are joyful that is not arbitrarily assigned from within, but it's given from outside of ourselves, from God. And so they rejoiced because it was given from God. Oftentimes we think of praise and we say that it's something that we do. And that is true. Praise is something we do. But biblically, praise always begins with God. It's always for God and directed to him because of what he's done. It's always a response. And that brings joy, praise, and rejoicing. Now, at Resurrection Anglican, we are going through Acts for Ordinary Season. And a few weeks ago, I preached on Acts 8. 
And the title of the sermon then is the same as it is today. I'm already recycling sermon titles, and I'm only a year into this pastor thing. So it's joy in the city. Joy in the city is what was experienced in Acts 8. I'm going to turn there and read from there. But what we see in Acts, verse, Acts 8, verse 8, is the fulfillment of Acts 1. That as the apostles are sent out, they would take the gospel to Judea and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we see that happen in Acts 8. And we see the result of that is joy. And so Acts 8, verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah. The gospel has gone out. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they paid close attention to what he said. So the gospel in word and deed, and then other people lean in to listen. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. When the gospel, when the good news comes, there is rejoicing, not only for the Christians, but there ought to be rejoicing in the city where all people rejoice. And this is what Proverbs 10, Proverbs 11, 10 says exactly, that when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. And we are righteous not because of anything that we've done, because if it is anything that we've done, that brings self-righteousness. And inevitably, that leads to looking down at other people. But this joy and this righteousness comes from God, and it's a gift of his grace. And therefore, it should lead to, as we are blessed, others are blessed as well, and that the city rejoices, and that there is good because of our prospering. And so may it be that whenever Christ Church Santa Fe, Resurrection Anglican, The Grove, Blaze Christian Fellowship, or First Baptist Santa Fe is prospering, There is rejoicing in Santa Fe. And I do think that we are prospering. Christ's church is prospering. In the midst of everything that's going on, you've commissioned new elders, ordained them just a couple weeks ago, right? That's new. That's exciting. That's prospering. Resurrection Anglican, we were planted in the midst of a pandemic. We are growing, we are small but we are growing in the midst of everything that's going on in the world. And so we are prospering. There are new churches being planted, new partnerships maturing, and new ones growing. And so we are prospering, and therefore the city should be rejoicing. We ought to be looking for ways to bless Santa Fe, to be a joy and to be a light here. And one of the ways that we've prospered most is because of the generosity of this church. John preached on Nehemiah 11 a few weeks ago. And one of the central parts of Nehemiah 11 is sending people to the city, tithing 10% of their people to go live in the city. And they blessed those people and they sent them to the city. That's exactly what we're doing today, is that we are prospering because you're prospering. That you are healthy enough to send people to us, leaders, like Christopher, people who have been here for years, Jose, and the rest of the Puentices. We are prospering because of your health. And I pray that that leads to new ways that we prosper at Resurrection Anglican and it blesses the city, and new ways that you prosper and bless the city of Santa Fe.
And that's the good news going out. That's the good news being sent out. And that's kingdom-mindedness at its best. And Resurrection Anglican wouldn't be here if it weren't for that. And so why do we do this? Why do we work so hard at planting churches? Why do we work so hard at coming together every Sunday? It's not easy to get up Sunday morning, especially if you have kids and come to church and proclaim the gospel. Why do we proclaim it and preach it to ourselves every day? It's because worry, malaise, nihilism, loss of meaning, anxiety, and frustration are the words that characterize our cultural moment. And as I think about how I feel, I can't help but think about how it used to feel without Christ and how people without Christ feel today. And if you've been around me anytime, you've probably heard me talk about David Troyer. David Troyer, this comes to mind as I think about the malaise of our cultural moment. David Troyer is an author, and he teaches at University of Southern California. He's a novelist, and he's written several nonfiction works. For the last few years, he's written a few. Um, sorry, he's written fiction, but he's ventured into nonfiction. His first book in nonfiction was titled Res Life. Res Life because he's half Ojibwe and half Jewish. And so we wanted to write about not only the bad things about reservation life, because that's talked about often, but he wanted to write about the goodness of it. But his memoir starts out with a dark scene. And David Troyer is not a Christian. And so that's why his describing this scene of going back to the reservation for his grandfather's funeral characterizes our time in so many ways. So David Troyer's grandfather took his own life with a gun in his room at his home on the reservation. And David Troyer had to go there and clean it up. And David Troyer, by the way, teaches sometimes at American Indian Art Institute. And so he is a part of the Santa Fe community to a certain extent. And so David Troyer writes this about having to clean up his grandfather's room after he took his life. The day had grown warm. And as I cut the carpet and rolled it, the dust and dander rose into the air and choked me. It was not hard as far as work, as far as tearing up carpet goes, but it wasn't fun. The carpet tore easily, and that was a blessing. Nonetheless, I took my time. I stopped occasionally and wandered into the main room, main part of the house, and sat across from my grandfather's chair and smoked cigarettes, still a little shocked that he wasn't there. When, it went, when I went... When I went back into the bedroom and I was confronted by the patch of blood, the brain and the lymph, I had the strange feeling that my grandfather, all of him, his body and self and words, his whole life had somehow disappeared into the floor. I began to resent the carpet, so cheap, so easily torn, so incapable of holding my grandfather's blood, which had soaked through the carpet and into the subfloor. I began to curse. I cursed that carpet as I had never cursed anyone in my life. And on and on I went. I hated that cheap, thick, blue foam-backed, glued-down carpet more than I had ever hated anything or anyone. That carpet, that cheap, cheap carpet. That carpet, the same color as the reservation is colored on some, on some Minnesota maps of northern Minnesota. Just as torn, dusty, and damaged. Just as durable, just as inadequate. We all struggle to do our jobs. 
the job of living, the job of dying, the job of muddling the two. But that carpet didn't do its job. It didn't keep its end of the bargain. Today, and between Christ's first and second coming, so often our lives feel hopeless. We feel like the things of this world can't hold our hopes, our dreams, and our laments. David Troyer here is recognizing that. And this is what life without Christ is. And so what's the alternative? I'm going to read another longish quote. It's from a friend of the family. Well, it's a distant relative of mine. And she posted this on Facebook. She's had health problems throughout her life. And she's a military wife. So she was in Italy when COVID was at its worst there. She posted this a few months ago. And think about this with David Troyer in mind as you listen to this. This year, and our past four years in Italy for that matter, I have felt God challenge where I place my hope. It began when I was pregnant with Jonah and my health started declining. For about a year, I could barely walk. I was isolated at home, living in a new country with my family 6,000 miles away. At that time, God asked me, Do you place your hope in your health? Do you place your hope in your family? God graciously gave me my health back. But the next few years, Nate, that's her husband, was gone for half the year, every year. God asked me over and over again, do you place your hope in your husband? On New Year's Day of this year, Nate and I breathed a sigh of relief and celebrated because he was finally done. We were finally done. Over four years of hardship was behind us, and in February, we were moving into a new chapter of life together back home in the States. That's February of this year. But three days later, Nate was called into work, and we had about five minutes to say goodbye. He deployed a few days later and was gone for two months. Our move was put on hold, and to be honest, I was broken. My journal is filled with angry letters to God from those two months. Many early mornings were spent on my hands and knees, crying and begging God to bring my husband home. After a tough year of separation, I felt like I had no strength left, but God was faithful in providing strength every day to get by. Two days after Nate came home, school was canceled and COVID-19 restrictions began. Since then, almost everything had been taken away, and I hear God asking me again, where do you place your hope? In your husband? And moving home, in your family, in your church, in your Bible study, in the gym, in your friends, in nature, all good things. Gifts meant to be enjoyed, but terrible places to put your hope. Our hope must be placed in Christ, the love which we can never be separated from. We are blessed when we suffer, when God takes things away, because our displaced hope has a chance to be put back in its proper place. Ironically, when our hope is in the right place, we are actually more free and able to enjoy the gifts God gives us. I share this because now, in this time, more than ever, I lean into suffering and ask myself, where do I place my hope? I've been sharing a lot of positivity this past week, and I have had some people ask me, or say to me, it seems like you are enjoying being quarantined. Ha ha ha. I have felt led to explain why. It is not some vague devotion to positivity or inner strength. My peace and my joy 
and any strength I have comes from my hope in Christ. I promise you, he is faithful in giving to all who ask of him. The nihilism of finding meaning in yourself, the flimsiness of things of this world, and contrast that with Jesus, who is always faithful, who is always there, even in the darkest of times. This is why we plant churches. This is why our prospering leads to rejoicing in the city. And that's why we continue in ceremony. And so we praise and we worship. And first, I'm forgetting my points here. We praise, we worship first in purity, in joy, and lastly, in order. It seems a bit anticlimactic that we would talk about order after all of this. But passion dies. And when passion dies, order and structure keeps things going. And so these are two needed things. As I said, we're Anglicans and we're Presbyterians. We like order. We like structure. One, uh, and so that's what Nehemiah is doing in verses 44 through 47. As they turn to the book of the law and they assign roles and they have structure and organization to this revival that has happened, this covenant renewal in chapters 8 through 10. The way they keep this going is through what one commentator said is the institutionalization of progress. Is they, to go from the day to day and the week to week, the month to month, year to year, decade on decade, there must be structure in God's church. And so that's what Nehemiah is doing in verses 44 through 47. And so why do, we keep, why do they keep going with these ceremonies from the Old Testament? Why do we keep going with our ceremonies, coming to the table, coming together to worship, going through our liturgy? Well, the first reason, as we already talked about, is it brings meaning. Remembering the sacredness of life and of things brings meaning to our lives. And Nehemiah continues the ceremonies, the purification ceremonies, the sacrifices of the Old Testament in his time in Jerusalem because they all point forward to something else. All the sacrifices point to an ultimate sacrifice. They all pave the way and incite a longing for an ultimate sacrifice. And that we know today is Jesus. That is the gospel. That it's nothing that we have done, but it is the spotless lamb slain on our behalf, appeasing God's wrath, so that you and I could be in communion with that heavenly union of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in everlasting glory. And so today we continue ceremonies like coming to the table, and we look forward to the wedding supper of the Lamb, where on that day we will be united with Christ, and there will be no more COVID, no more being gone for active duty, no more sickness, and no more unrest. The day in Revelation 21 too, when heaven comes down. That's why we continue ceremony. That's why Nehemiah continued ceremony. And may it be that whenever we are prospering, Santa Fe rejoices as we worship in purity, with joy, and with order. Thank you, Christ Church, 
for the blessing that you've been to me and my family. And in the most tiring of times, I've thought of you. So thank you. Thank you, Greg, and thank you, John.